0: Tonight, Media Mark Anthony joins me to talk about King Tut and other mysteries. See you in five minutes. I hope you're doing good. I think I heard you all say you're doing good. (laughs) I'm not psychic. Well, I kind of am, but anyway, we got a great show set up for you. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. And I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you have a paranormal problem and you need someone to come out and help you out, we have people in almost every county of the state that can reach you, even if you're not in their county. So if you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at CaliforniaHuntsRadio.com, CaliforniaHunts.org, or you can get me on Facebook. We have several Cal- a couple California Haunts sites there, as well as my personal site, which is public for you. Okay? So check it, check it out over there. Anyway, I want to invite anybody that's listening from Facebook to go ahead and, you know, if you, if you like what you hear, to go ahead and follow me. Because we're looking for followers on Facebook, you know, all these shows are looking for followers, and we're no different. Uh, if you're watching from YouTube, there's a little ghost in the bottom right hand corner, and it's got a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. And also click that for subscribing, because we have more than 200 videos over there of, of, of different topics and varying topics, and I think there's something there for everybody. So if you're, if, you know, if you like what you hear tonight, go ahead and click. If you don't like what you hear tonight, tell your friends to click. Equal opportunity, right? Anyway, tonight's guest. I have been a fan of his for a long, long time. And uh, I have followed his career. And I listen to almost every show that he's on. So I, I, I'm so honored to have him on my show. And uh, the other thing is that I have been an after anthrop- an archeology. Nut for years, ancient, you know, ancient history. My brother and his girlfriend were and archaeology students, in fact, she had an invitation to go study with Dr. Leakey. And when I was probably around six or seven years old, I remember them taking me to San Francisco when King Tut's stuff was on display. and I remember seeing it as a kid and I was really, really, really impressed by it. And then when it came back around, what was it ten years ago, something like that, maybe more, a friend and I went. To see it, and I was impressed, as impressed then as I was as a kid. So, uh, my guest also enjoys that part of history, and so I'm really looking forward to talking to him about that, because King Tut has a very sad history, and you guys have seen stuff on TV, and it really, it really doesn't hit until you physically see the artifacts and you realize, you know, that the miscarriages were there and all this stuff that happened to him. So I'm really excited. So without further ado, I'm gonna bring my guest on who is Medium Anthony. Oh my gosh, I just had a brain fart. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh there it is, Mark Anthony. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, Mark. Medium Mark Anthony. I just had I just had a I just had a brain fart. But Mark Anthony, I mean, I can't say enough about him. Here we go. <laughs> I'm so hey, Sorry.
1: actually it's Mark Anthony JD Psychic Explorer.
0: There we go. Okay. Not okay. medium Mark
1: Anthony. Okay. All right,
0: thank you. Gee, what know. a time to have a brain farm, isn't it?
1: I never use that term.
0: <laughs> so tell me about you.
1: Well, I'm on your show tonight. What do you want to know?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you've done so much in, in, in your you know during your career what got you into looking into King Tut stuff?
1: I've been interested in, in ancient history since I've been a child. Um, I mean, when I was a little kid, I just used to gravitate to, to any type of ancient artifacts, but Egypt in particular has really stood out for me and I just could not get enough of it. And I remember being about seven or eight years old and seeing one of those you know horror movies of a mummy that came back to life and, and uh, was killing all these people. And so Hollywood seems to relish in, in these hyperactive mummies that get up and run around and, and murder people. And it got me wondering, well, where did all this come from? Mm-hmm. And it, there has been a mystique around the discovery of Tutankhamen's tomb that it was somehow cursed. So that anyone who disturbed the rest of the Pharaoh would you know would be um, punished by these unseen and sinister forces. Mm-hmm. but uh, and, and, and the thing about Egyptology is that Egypt is all things to all people because there's a lot of uh, the UFO crowd that thinks that the pyramids are somehow alien technology. And there's people who feel that they've had past lives there. And the thing about Egypt is the story of Egypt, Charlotte, is the story of human history itself. It, it, it goes back, recorded history in Egypt goes back um, at least 5,000 years. And it, it was civilized for, for centuries. I mean, think about it when the ancient city of Memphis which is where we get the name in, in our country from Memphis, was a capital. London was just a field. I mean, there was nothing there. And, you know, we think of London and Paris as being these ancient cities. Well, they are. But by the time they came along, Egypt had already been flourishing as a civilization for 3,000 years. So it's, it's such an immense period of history. And it's fascinating. And there's all sorts of mysteries and treasure. And, you know, it just really sparks the uh, the imagination and sense of adventure in people.
0: Now, let me ask you this. As a psychic, because I thought about this, because at that time, when I went this last time, I was, I, was, I was already a ghost. I already had my ghost hunting team. As a psychic, do you are, did you find any connection with, with any of this stuff as you're reading it? Or do you get any feelings about it?
1: Uh, I, I really do. Um, when I was at the British Museum, in London. And let me tell you, anyone that goes to to London at least set aside a day for the British Museum. It's one of the best in the world. In fact, they have the Rosetta Stone there, which is what helped us crack the code on on reading ancient hieroglyphs. But there was a display set up in, in this the library at the British Museum, which incidentally was King George III's library. And I mean, it is uh, you know, and of course, you know, Americans, we think of King George III as you know, the nefarious bad guy, the king that we rebelled against. And in a lot of ways, he was. And it's nice to see that Americans then and hopefully now are standing up to autocrats who want to control every facet of our life. But I digress. Um, the thing is, um, they were doing a display of ancient artifacts. And one of the docents, he was this very elderly, he was like the quintessential. English gentleman. I mean, you can see this guy stepping out of Downton Abbey. I mean, that's how he was. And he had these different artifacts. He said, would you like to handle them? And I, I picked one up and I said, okay, this was used for. And I went into this whole explanation and I touched all of them and I explained what I felt they were and possibly even who owned them. And he said, how could you possibly know that? And I said, well, that I'm doing what's known as psychometry. And psychometry is where a psychic is able to read the vibration of a physical object or a place. And so he kept giving me things to see what, what I would get. And I remember when I was in very close proximity to uh, Tutankhamun's artifacts on on a couple different occasions. And, you know, it's very easy, Charlotte, to look at at these ancient artifacts as just like a, an exhibit in a museum. Mm-hmm. But I remember I was about this far, and I, di- I wasn't able to touch it, and I, I wouldn't have because it's so precious. But it was the crown that he wore on a daily basis. It was a bronze band, and it had, you know, the, the cobra. You know, there was the cobra and the, um, the vulture. Those are the symbols of the Egyptian pharaohs. In charlotte this profound sense of sadness just came over me and I, I I had this connection that I wasn't looking at an artifact but I was looking at something that belonged to a person and and I really got this this heartfelt heartfelt connection there so uh, I know I, I went on a bit but but uh, that answers your question.
0: Well, yeah, because, I mean, I have abilities. I, I can't do psychometry or anything like that. But I got the yes, same. You can.
1: Charlotte, yes, you can. Everybody can do psychometry. And what you do uh, is take your non-dominant hand. You know, for me, that would be my left hand. Okay. If you're left-handed, take your right hand and put an object in it, an object that does not belong to you because you can't read your own energy, an object that belongs to somebody else. And then um, what you do is um, just start writing down whatever comes to your mind. Don't stop and think, feel. And then show it to the person who owns the object, and you will be surprised at how much accurate information you get. Now, why is that possible? That's possible because matter retains vibration. And I know that, you know, in the metaphysical field, stories like, sort of like, oh, the vibration and the energy, you know, and people are saying that. Well, I studied on the basis of quantum physics and, and you know, you know I'm, not, I'm only joking around about, about my colleagues, but I hear a lot of people, oh, my energy, my energy. But when you start studying this, we know that everything's made of molecules, which in turn are made of atoms, which in turn are made of electrons, protons and neutrons. And then on the subatomic level, those are made of a quantum which is electromagnetic energy. And the thing is, Charlotte, that every object has a vibration, whether it's, you know, this computer mouse, me, you, the the radio waves that your show is being broadcast on, Mm -hmm. all of that at the subatomic level is quantum electromagnetic energy, and everything has its own unique vibration. So, in psychometry, what you're doing is when you take, let's say, you know, I take this pen and it belonged to you and um, I hold it, I'm picking up vib- your vibration that is attached to it and through that, I'm able to discern facts and pieces of evidence about whoever owned this object or or held it um, before I did. And so that's why when I, I explore ancient sites Uh, Because that's what I do. I mean, the reason I'm called the Psychic Explorer, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm an attorney as well as a psychic medium. And I travel, that's the JD, that's my degree, Juris Doctorate. And I've traveled the world examining ancient and uh, and spiritual locations. And some of the things that that I've picked up have been really quite amazing.
0: Um, Have you ever been asked, because I had a gentleman on a few nights ago. Who who worked in a program, who, who works with, with psychics who um, are able to find ancient sites like like on a grid? Have you ever been asked to do anything like that?
1: Not yet. Well, yes, I've been asked to, um, but we weren't able to go because of the whole pandemic. Right. Um, uh, Dr. Robert Scotch, uh, who uh, you're probably familiar with his work. He is is an amazing um, researcher and scientist. He spent a lot of time in Egypt studying the Great Sphinx, and he believes that the Sphinx is actually much older than the pyramids on the Giza plateau. And um, I met him. We were both speakers at the Edgar Casey Center's Ancient Mysteries Conference a couple years ago, and he said, "I want you to come to Egypt with me and do exactly what you're talking about." But then the pandemic hit, and and you know now everybody's trying to you know do we do this do we you know we're all trying to put things back together.
0: Interesting. So um, I, I can say that when, when I saw the artifacts in San Francisco, I got the same impression you did. I felt this profound sadness looking yeah. at them, especially when you see the 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 the, yeah, the, the mummified miscarried babies.
1: Yeah. Did they have the Did they have the fetuses on display there?
0: Yes, they had.
1: Wow, that's see, that's very rare for those to. Okay, for the benefit of the listeners, because a lot of people may not be aware of this, it's the reason we're doing this show. Is it's 2022, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the hundredth anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Mm-hmm. So that happened in 1922, and. A lot of people that aren't familiar with Egyptology think King Tut was somehow involved with the pyramids. Mm-hmm. Well, well, King Tut, King Tutankhamun, was essentially the last pharaoh of Egypt's 18th dynasty. The pyramids were constructed during the fourth dynasty, and the pyramids were constructed roughly 4,500 years ago. All right, that's 45 centuries. Tutankhamun lived 33 centuries ago. Almost as much time passed between the construction of the Great Pyramid and the death of Tutankhamun as passed between the birth of Jesus and the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. I mean, when you start thinking in terms like that, it's like this is an immense period of time. And then let's go another 1,300 years after Tutankhamun, Cleopatra comes along, okay, which, you know, depending on how you envision her, either Elizabeth Taylor or Gal Gadot has got a Cleopatra movie. That's the one I want to see. Um, I just hope she doesn't turn Cleopatra into Xeno warrior princess, you know, <laughs> um, because uh, Cleopatra was a, certainly a fascinating right. character. And then Cleopatra lived 20 centuries ago. So when we start looking at this immense period of time, so Tutankhamun had nothing to do with the pyramids and he was buried in what is called the Valley of the Kings. And the Valley of the Kings is an area where the ancient Egyptians used to, they would burrow and, and, um, and chisel out in the bedrock, these elaborate tunnel complexes and, and they would bury the pharaohs there. And what happened with Tutankhamun is that he was sort of a footnote in, in Egypt, Egyptology, and most of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings have been discovered and excavated, and certainly by the 1920s they were, and pretty much all of them were empty. Yeah, you know, They found a couple pieces of jewelry, a few statues here and there, and that's because Within 200 years of these pharaohs being buried, they were raided by tomb robbers, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, because for one night's work, you can make a couple billion dollars, literally, in in the gold and the treasure. But, But nobody had any idea what the tombs would be like. Well, along comes quirky Howard Carter. And Howard Carter is one of my favorite people in history, Charlotte. Um, he he went to Egypt when he was 17 years old to work for Egyptologists and he used to draw pictures of tombs. He was a gifted artist. He never had any formal education in Egyptology, yet he became the most famous Egyptologist of all time. And, and he learned Egyptology by doing it. From the time he was a teenager, working, 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 he was obsessive. And He wanted to find the tomb of Tutankhamun, so that set him on a lifelong quest.
0: Sometimes the people that learn stuff Mm -hmm. hands on are the best researchers.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, it's the practical versus the theoretical, and The thing about Carter is he also spent some of his life searching for the tomb of Alexander the Great. I mean, that's a whole other discussion, which still has not been located. But what happened was he found the patronage from the 5th Earl of Carnarvon, um, Lord Carnarvon. And Lord Carnarvon was also... uh, a uh, self-taught Egyptologist. He had a number of health problems, so he used to go to Egypt during the winters to get away from the cold, wet, rainy uh, uh, winters of Egypt and be in the dry climate, and he developed this love for Egyptology, and so he met Howard Carter, and Carter said, you know, I'm looking for the tomb of Tutankhamun." and so Carnarvon started picking up the tab. But this had gone on for close to 20 years, and the only thing that Carter produced was a massive pile of bills for Lord Carnarvon. So it was 1922, and Carnarvon said, we're done, and Carter begged him, one more season, please, just one more season. So Carnarvon reluctantly agreed. Meanwhile, in Egypt, it's probably... Oh, it's about the end of October, and uh, Carter was a very lonely man. He was a what what they called back then a confirmed bachelor. Um, as far as we know, he was never involved with either women or men. But but we don't know. Um, he he was also very OCD and obsessive, uh, which which was a good trait for him. It served him well, and. He was rude and abrupt to people that he considered stupid. Uh, he hated reporters. He couldn't stand when people asked him what he thought were dumb questions. So he could just be uh, really cantankerous. And he bought this canary at a bazaar. Uh, so he, he had this gilded gold gauge with this little yellow canary. And he loved this canary. And so he, he lived in a house. Um, not far from the Valley of the Kings. It was probably you know, it took about 20, 30 minutes to get there. And the, his, his household staff, they were you know native Egyptians. And, and they were like, they love the fact that he got this canary because it kind of took the edge off him being rude to them. And, and um, it was the morning of November 4th, 1922, and Carter wakes up another restless night. You know, it was always Tutankhamun common on his mind but he liked the little birds singing him songs. And he had a very uneasy feeling that day, Charlotte. So when he arrived at the dig, and the thing is, this expedition funded by Lord Carnarvon in England was no small feat. There was over 100 workers there. I want to talk a little bit about Lord Carnarvon. Have you seen Downton Abbey, Charlotte? Yes. Yes. All right. Probably most of your your uh, listeners, your your audience has seen Downton Abbey. You know where it's filmed? It's filmed in England at High Clare Castle. And we know High Clare Castle as Downton Abbey because the interior scenes and the exteriors filmed at Downton Abbey. All right. And Lord Carnarvon lived, in fact, his uh, great-grandson, the 8th Earl of Carnarvon, still um, is the lord of, of Highclere Castle. And um, all the interior scenes, you know, with the aristocrats, Lady Mary, Lord Grantham, uh, what's her name, Maggie Smith, they're all filmed inside Highclere. But the scenes with the staff, you know, the, where they go down below uh, in, in the, like the basement and have dinner... Well, those are filmed in a movie studio um, outside of London. Why? Why do you think that is? I don't know. That's because it is rumored that the basement of Highclere Castle houses the Carnarvon family's private Egyptian collection. Oh. Okay. And so that's kind of like a little piece of the puzzle here. All right, so let's go back to 1922. Lord Carnarvon's kind of strapped for cash. What do we see in Downton Abbey all the time? It's a bunch of English aristocrats in the 1920s and they're always strapped for cash. So it's kind of like life imitating art here. Mm -hmm. So it's November 4th. Carter shows up at the excavation site. Nobody's working. An eerie silence filled the air. That meant one of two things happened. Either... Somebody had been killed or they found something. And one of the Egyptian workers ran up to him and was like very, very excited. And he said, what is it? What is it? He goes, we found something. So, and, and here's what's so ironic. Just 30, 40 feet from the tomb of Ramses Sixth, in an area that they had constantly overlooked, There was a step, a stone step that they uncovered in the sand. And so they started uncovering more and more. And and they they found 16 steps going down into the ground. Carter was thinking, okay, um, this is awesome. But, you know, maybe it's just another empty tomb. And then as they got down, it led to a door. So they're digging away the dirt. And Carter's heart almost stopped, Charlotte because the door to this tomb, the clay seal on it was still intact, meaning the tomb had not been raided, not been opened, and it gets even better. The hieroglyph on the seal had one word, Tutankhamun. Okay, so Carter is like, oh my God, oh my God. He immediately orders guards to to um, contacts the Egyptian government. They put armed guard. They fill fill this all back up. He had to get hold of Lord Karnavan. All right, this is 1922, so it's not like Karnavan could jump on a, a jet plane. And um, he said, great discovery made. So Karnavan and his daughter, Lady Evelyn, it took them three weeks to get there. They had to hop a ship. And, you know, of course, he had to make arrangements. You just don't leave your, you know, gigantic 100-room uh, estate without making preparations. And so Carnarvon and Lady Evelyn get there, and it's November 26th. So they uncover the dirt, they get uh, to the, the door, they, they remove the seal, and they open the door, and there's all sorts of debris And it took an entire day for the um, workers to clear a 30-foot hallway of debris. And then they get to another door. And I'm going to read Howard Carter's own words from his book. Carter described what happened next. For the moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by, I was struck dumb with amazement, and when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things. So then they're holding a candle and what was interesting, they noted that um, Carter drilled a hole in the, the top of this door and when the air came out, the air smelled lightly of coconut oil and perfume. Nobody had breathed breathed that air for 33 centuries. So Carnarvon and Lady Evelyn, and think of Lady Evelyn like Lady Mary from Downton Abbey, because I've read enough about these people. I can see where they, they got the idea for this. They looked in and they were like, oh, my God. And they described that everywhere was the glimmer of gold. And the room that they peered into was packed with statues, game boards, linens, jewelry, bed, couches, statues, um, even a throne, all piled on top of each other. And no one had seen anything like this for over 3,000 years.
0: That is something, you know, I mean... They can't even clearly see what's in there yet. I mean, you're just in there with a candle trying to see you know, into
1: this dark tomb. Yeah, and, and the thing is, this was the only up to that point in time, the only intact Pharaoh's tomb discovered. Because, you know, as we were talking about earlier, all the rest had been plundered. And but but this, this went beyond their wildest imagination. And I believe there was um, I'm trying to remember, it said five or seven rooms? Um they they removed, it took ten years to take everything out of the tomb. Um, Howard Carter was very meticulous and he called in a team of the best of the best. He contacted the Louvre, the British Museum, the Museum um, uh, um, uh, the one in New York City, the, uh, not the Museum of Modern Art, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I mean, he got the best archaeologists, photographers there in the world. And so they they numbered everything, they categorized everything, and they took it out. And then the the tomb nearby, Ramses the sixth tomb, was used as kind of a lab because it was large and it was uh, near there. And and they found some some really amazing things, but but they wanted to get to the king's mummy because that was I mean that was hitting the lottery. And they found in in the burial chamber this huge pink granite sarcophagus and the the lid of it had cracked so they had to develop this elaborate system of of um, pulleys to pull this up because it weighed a lot and then they found a large wooden coffin and when they tried to lift the coffin out it weighed something like 400 pounds and they couldn't understand why it was so heavy What was the first of three human shaped coffins? And they were wooden, but they were gilded with gold. So they were painted in gold. But the innermost coffin was solid gold 250 pounds of pure gold. All right. So they are like, oh my God. All right. Then. When they open that up, the king's mummy has the elaborate gold death mask, and that—that's pr- perhaps the most recognizable symbol of ancient Egypt: the Tutankhamun's gold death mask. So there was the mummy, and it was like a helmet that they put over, covered his his face and the back of his head, and it was solid gold, and and it has, you know, it's called the Nemes. You know the, that that. Um, in fact, I've got. If you'll hold on a second. Now, this is not Tutankhamun, but this is um, um, an Egyptian, you know, statue. And this is the headdress that um, that would have been on the, uh, the Tutankhamun's mummy. So you should see the rest of the house. I got Egyptian stuff everywhere. Got Egyptian, Peruvian, Roman, Greek, you know, just medieval stuff. Um, but they they could not believe this discovery and the problem is when the ancient Egyptians mummified the king they they wrapped the bandages very tightly on the body then they poured what they called unguents, these sacred oils and and elixirs all over well over 3,000 years it hardened and essentially glued him to the golden coffin And they tried all sorts of ways to get the mummy out of there. They eventually ended up sectioning it up, which, you know, by modern archaeological standards is like, you know, but uh, they, they got it out as best they could. And then the mummy started giving them more questions. Other mummies that have been found always had the heart. The Egyptians considered the heart the most important organ. They considered that where your soul resided and where you thought, but there was no heart to be found. And then on um, more recent, in more recent years, examination of, of the mummy indicated that he suffered, Tutankhamen suffered from a number of very painful diseases and orthopedic problems. He was born with a club foot. He, his, uh, the DNA test showed signs of malaria and possibly sickle cell anemia and an, a necrotic and deteriorating orthopedic condition. He was only 19 years old when he died. He must have become king around eight or nine. So roughly, you know, he ruled for 10 years. Uh, but but he was in tremendous physical pain. We also know that he had difficulty walking because they found dozens of walking sticks, basically canes, in his tomb because they always bur- buried uh, the pharaoh. They buried people with their personal effects, personal property, and these walking sticks had been used they could tell because of the dings and the dents on them so it was very clear that Tutankhamun um, was was quite ill but why was his heart missing I mean for a pharaoh a, who they consider to be a god living on earth why didn't they have his heart there well all sorts of theories have come about was he murdered Was he perhaps in a terrible chariot accident? Because they did find chariots. He did like riding chariots. Um, What happened to him? Was he poisoned? Was he beaten to death? Did he die in battle? Pretty unlikely that he died in battle because he was such a physical wreck. It had been very hard for him to go into battle, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't have been near there. Or maybe he was just riding a chariot and fell out of it. Other... um, Examinations of his body show that there was a bone infection. So it looked like he may have fractured a leg, uh, uh, excuse me, a bone in his leg because it appeared as if it hadn't healed and he could have gotten sepsis, which had been a blood disease, but it still goes back to where was his heart. So the going theory is that he may have died in some type of terrible accident.
0: It's interesting to think too, and and you hate to talk about the family history, but didn't was he not married to his sister?
1: Yes, Tutankhamun appears to be the byproduct of generations of inbreeding because the ancient Egyptian pharaohs were considered gods on earth, and only a god could marry a god goddess. And his 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 queen was Ancasenaman believed to be his sister or more likely his half-sister. And then, of course, the most disturbing find in the tomb that we were talking about was two mummified fetuses. Recent DNA tests on those indicate that Tutankhamun was most likely their father. So, but, but you know, it's it's kind of creepy. Why are there two fetuses in there? Is it because, you know, Anka Sanaman miscarried them? And when the king died, they buried them with him. Some people speculate, could this be some bizarre human sacrificial rite? It seems very unlikely that the Egyptians would have uh, murdered his, and they appear to be twins, his twin daughters uh, as part of some type of rite. So, so it's very possible that they were miscarried uh, fetuses. But... Tutankhamun's family history is one of the most interesting ones in ancient Egypt. His father was Akhenaten, and Pharaoh Akhenaten was the pharaoh who believed in one god. Now, this was highly unusual in 1300 BC during the height of the Bronze Age because all the religions pretty much in the world with the possible exception of the Zoroastrian religion of, of Persia, which was still, um, you know, in its infancy, and certainly the, the one god of the Hebrews, of the Jewish people. But Akhenaten believed in the, the god, um, the sun god, um Aten but not just the sun god, but a very specific aspect of the energy of the sun. And he insisted that the ancient religion of Egypt be discarded. And so he cut the funding for all the the priesthood of the the, uh, polytheistic, the belief in many different gods. All right. Well, look, the religion back then, religion then as now, bottom line, money. And the priests of ancient Egypt wielded a tremendous amount of power. I mean, they were the scribes. They, they, they made the government work. And now you cut their funding and tell them they're a bunch of heretics. So they did not like him. They hated him. And he built another city, a new capital called Amarna. It was the city of the sun, the city to his his one God. Well, Akhenaten only reigned for about 19 years. And when he died, Tutankhamun becomes pharaoh, we think, because it looks like there may have been another pharaoh in between, Smenkare Was Smenkari a woman taking the position of pharaoh? Was it one of Akhenaten's wives? We don't know because Smenkari is a very transitory and shadowy figure. And then all power falls into the hands of nine-year-old Tutankhamun. Well, the first thing Tutankhamun does, and we know he didn't do it, it was the power behind the throne, is restore the ancient religion. Second thing he does, he has the city of Amarna, the one his father built for the one god of the sun, leveled to the ground. And so they they turn back the clock and go back to the ancient religion. I seriously doubt a nine-year-old had the political wherewithal to do all this, so we know that he was being controlled and manipulated by forces behind the throne. Two in particular, the Grand Vizier, whose name was I, and the General of the Army's Haremhab. All right, fast forward 10 years. Tutankhamen dies at age 19. He has the smallest tomb in the Valley of the Kings. His mummy didn't quite fit the coffin. It looked like his tomb was a rush job based on the poor quality of the paintings. You, you contrast the paintings in Tutankhamun's tomb to those of some of the other pharaohs. I mean, like Ramses, the great, you know, the, the one of uh, you know, Moses and the Israelites, you know, that you, you contrast uh, the artwork in the other their tombs. So Tutankhamun either died unexpectedly or pursuant to some type of plan. And he's whisked under the carpet. So what happens to his, uh, his young bride, Anka Sanaman, his half-sister?
0: Did, well, didn't she rule for a while or no? Oh, did not, didn't I marry her?
1: Yes. And here's what happened. In what is now Turkey that was at that time the, the kingdom of the Hittites. And the Hittites are a fascinating people uh, from what you know, very warlike, but also um, great architects. They're even referenced in the Bible on more than one occasion in the Old Testament, there's references to the Hittites. In fact, I think um, when David was having an affair with Bathsheba, her husband Uriah the Hittite, uh, David conveniently had killed in battle, but I digress. That's another story. So Ancasonoman wrote a letter to the king of the Hittites. And how do we know this? Because when the Hittite capital of Hattusis was excavated in the 20th century, the the um, library, their their hall of records was found, and letters, two letters from Tutankhamun's widow were sent to the king of the Hittites. And she essentially said my husband is dead. I have no son. I will not be forced to marry a servant. Send me one of your sons so that he may become king of Egypt. A servant? You mean like the grand vizier I? And the king of the Hittites responds with, well, basically, I don't know if I can believe you. She sends him another letter repeating that and said that, please, she's like begging him. So from what we can tell from the Hittite records, the king did send one of his sons, and he never made it. Apparently, he died en route to Egypt. It appears that his caravan may have been attacked and ambushed. Now, I'm speculating here, but we do know that right after That young Hittite prince died, a 20-year war, 20-year war broke out between the kingdom of the Hittites and Egypt. Now that now let me tell you something. The king sends his son to become Pharaoh of Egypt. He gets murdered. Who would be the suspect there? Oh, yeah, general of the armies, Horemhab. And then we know that ankhesenamen is married to the grand vizier i a man in his 60s old enough to be her grandfather and then ankhesenamen disappears without a trace even in i's tomb he was buried with full regalia of a pharaoh not one mention of ankhesenamen and to this date archaeologists have still not found her mummy or her tomb. So speculation abounds. Was this because the high priests of Egypt, who would have backed I and then Horemhab, wanted Tutankhamun, that entire family eradicated so they could go back to receiving funding uh, from the royal treasury? And what's interesting is I rules for a few years, and when he dies, Horemhab, the general, becomes pharaoh. So this has all the the plots, the twists, the motivation of of some type of palace coup, and the complete eradication of Akhenaten and his successor Smenkare and successor Tutankhamen. So, you know, when people ask, well, why do you like Egyptology? I I mean, this is cool stuff. I mean, you can watch Game of Thrones and all that stuff, but this is the real thing. This thing. is the real thing. And it's got all the intrigue. And, and then there's tons of literally tons of treasure uh, that, that came along with the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb.
0: Well, you know, when you think about the two fetuses, that's what makes you, it makes the mind wonder about that because if they were trying to eradicate him from his position. That would be the way to do it because he would even have no heirs at all.
1: Exactly. And I know that the, um, I know we're running short on time, but I want to get to the curse of Tutankhamun's tomb. All right. So we're back in 1922 and Tutankhamun's tomb is discovered and it becomes the biggest news story in the world. Reporters from every major newspaper in Europe, in the United States, even from Japan, flood to the Valley of the Kings. Howard Carter's about to lose his mind. He can't stand all the stupid questions. So Lord Carnarvon, he's dashing debonair. He's a British aristocrat. He's like, Howard, you take care of the excavation. I will handle the media. Well, at first, the media loves Lord Carnarvon because he certainly enjoyed, he, he loved the limelight. But then he turned around and he sold the exclusive rights to the story To the London Times. Oh my gosh, and all the reporters hated him. Remember earlier when I was talking about how Howard Carter bought that little yellow canary that he really loved? Well, the day, November 4th, the day that the tomb was discovered, just as they were uncovering the, the door to the tomb, meanwhile at Howard Carter's house, everybody on the expedition knew about the canary and the canary became the mascot of the expedition. In fact, when Carter brought the little canary home, one of his servants said, Inshallah, which means by the will of God, um, this golden canary will help us find a tomb full of gold. Okay, this was said. So just as the tomb is being opened, or or discovered, a few miles away at Howard Carter's house, a cobra gets into the canary's cage. The Egyptian staff runs into the room, and they're horrified as this cobra is devouring this little canary, the cobra being the symbol of the Egyptian pharaohs. So the Egyptian staff is totally freaked out. They knew this was a bad omen. Let me tell you, these rumors started spreading through the camp. So all the Egyptians are like, what have we done? So then a couple, eh, about a month or so later, Lord Carnarvon sells the rights of the excavation story to the London Times. And now all the other media outlets are shut out and they're ticked. Well, they've heard about the story about the, uh, uh, the canary, And then Lord Carnarvon in February of 1923 dies in Cairo in a hotel. He had um, a mosquito bite on his face and he cut it while shaving. He got infected, fell into a fever, a coma and died. And then when he died, all the lights in Cairo flickered for a few moments and went out. Okay, then a reporter Um, made up a story that within the tomb, a clay tablet was discovered that said, death will slay with his wings, whoever disturbs the rest of the pharaoh. All right, so now we have a curse, we have the cobra eating the mascot of the expedition, and we have the benefactor of the of the expedition dying under somewhat mysterious circumstances. But it didn't stop there. By 1929, a total of 22 people who'd been involved with the excavation of the tomb had died. And and it was a lot of really rich and powerful people. According to Time Magazine, American tycoon George J. Gould and British industrialist Joe Wolfe, and British aristocrats Mervyn Herbert and Richard Bethel all visited the tomb and then died shortly thereafter. Bethel's father, Lord Westbury, said, I cannot take these horrors anymore, and he jumped from a window to his death. And then during his funeral, the funeral carriage ran over and killed an eight-year-old boy. All right. People were dying. Rumors of curses were flying. The media was having a feeding frenzy on this. And so but the truth of the matter is, Charlotte, no such tablet with a curse on it ever existed. It was completely fabricated. Now, why did all these people die? This was Egypt in the 1920s. Let's see, yellow fever, malaria, dengue fever, typhoid, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, I mean, encephalitis. I mean, we're just getting started here. Antibiotics would not be available for almost another 20 years. Mm -hmm. So people dying, I mean, Lord Carnarvon died of an infection on his face that by today, simple antibiotics would have cured. But it certainly made for good storytelling. And it certainly led to to the mystique surrounding Tutankhamun's tomb. But questions still remain. Was he murdered? Mm -hmm. If he wasn't, then why wasn't his heart the most important organ, according to the Egyptians? Why was it not? that Because they would remove the heart and wrap it and put it back in the cavity chest. Why were the fetuses there? Like you said, were they simply a miscarriage or was this a murder? What happened to Anka Sanaman, Tutankhamun's wife? She pleaded with the king of the Hittites to send her a son that she could marry so he would become king of Egypt. That prince is murdered on the way to Egypt and then she's forced to marry the grand vizier. This is unprecedented in Egyptian history. Pharaohs and their wives did not marry servants. So why did that happen? And see, that's the fun with mysteries. We may never know, but they certainly add to the the history, the mystery, and the mystical significance of the curse of King Tutankhamun's tomb.
0: That's true. I've also seen on TV where they thought they found a head injury on him. And that, But they couldn't determine, like you say, whether it was a chariot race or whether somebody else had come in and clubbed him.
1: That's true. Um, there was speculation that there was a bone fragment that looked like it from an impact to the front of his face. And I was reading a report uh, recently, and it indicated that that did not seem to be um, the case. Um, because initially they'd x-rayed the mummy. Now they've been able to do CAT scans on it. But um, he certainly was banged up pretty bad uh, when he died. Also, the Egyptians, the weird thing is they didn't believe that the brain had any use, so they would take this hook-like instrument and go up through the nose and yank the brain out and Mm -hmm. discard it. Yet they would take the liver, the, the heart, the other internal organs, and a lot of those would be placed in what they called canopic jars, but with the heart, that got specially mummified and returned to the chest. So mm-hmm. that's why there, there's a lot of speculation here. Um, he probably died as a result from an infection from, inju- uh, from um, injuries received. Mm-hmm. He could very well have died from malaria, or it could very well have been poisoned. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe also, he was stabbed in the heart. Maybe that's why his heart wasn't there. The
0: heart wasn't, Yeah. Also, that tomb, when you talk about the size of the casket and everything, you know, it looked kind of like they had shoved him into whatever was available. That tomb, they, I don't think they, they think that tomb was for him, do they?
1: No, they don't. They think it may have been for... Um, it could possibly... See, they buried the queens in what's called the Valley of the Queens. Um, but it is possible it could have been for another member of a of the royal family because within the Valley of the Kings, there, there's other aristocrats who were, were buried there. So they don't think that the death mask was specifically made for him, nor do they, they, meaning Egyptologists, feel that the gold, the solid gold coffin was made specifically for him because it looks like he was kind of crammed in there. But once again, you know, it's not like we have a lot of, of gold coffins to compare that to. um If we had more time, I'd, I'd uh, love to talk about the other tomb that was discovered um, intact that had not one but three pharaohs in it. But that's going to have to be another story for
0: another time. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. What, what do you think... You know, as far as the history with, with him goes, well, like you say, the, there's a lot of intrigue involved with his life. Was there anything during his history at all, you know, during his kingdom that, that really stands out? Other than maybe, you know, the, 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 the manipulation that, you, that was probably going on behind, but something that he would have done that stands out. Well, the records
1: at the time of, of um, him are fragmentary because he was rather swept under the carpet. In fact, his the existence of his father, uh, Akhenaten, was all but unknown until there was an excavation of a site. And, and the, some, the, the Egyptologists found these giant um, blocks that had been used in some other building. And when they took them out, they started seeing this name of a pharaoh they'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. Because Akhenaten's, he his name was... Amenhotep IV, and his father, Amenhotep III, which would have been Tutankhamun's grandfather, was like the the kick butt and take names pharaoh. Amenhotep III, the Egyptian empire, was at its peak. It controlled not only modern-day Egypt, but a big chunk of Libya to the west, and territory, um, um, what would be Israel, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, and most of Syria. So basically at that time, Egypt controlled the whole uh, southeastern corner of the Mediterranean. And Amenhotep III, he was a pharaoh's pharaoh, manly, warlike, I mean, he had the, the whole bill of goods. And then he has this bizarre son who creates this religion um, of one God. Now, This What I'm about to say has been kind of shot down by a lot of Egyptologists, but it certainly makes for a good story. There are some people who feel that, you know, the good pharaoh of Exodus when Joseph is, you know, he's um, sold into slavery. Joseph the Hebrew is sold into slavery by his brothers um, and, and sold into slavery in Egypt. And uh, there's a pharaoh having these disturbing dreams about seven fat cows being devoured by seven skinny cows. And they say that the Hebrew Joseph has the gift of divination, of prophecy. And they bring Joseph before Pharaoh, and he interprets this as seven years of famine followed by seven years of plenty. Well, we, people who are strict constructionists and, and people of faith believe in the wicked pharaoh of Exodus. The one who, you know, Mo, you know Yul Brenner and Charlton Heston. Um, but um the thing is, um both biblical archaeologists and Egyptologists believe that the most likely candidate for the evil pharaoh would have been Ramses II and possibly his son Merenptah, who came roughly a hundred years after Tutankhamun. So if you believe in the bad pharaoh, there had to be a good pharaoh, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people in the archaeological field, they're divided on this, but the good pharaoh, the most likely suspect, could have been Akhenaten. And the question is, who influenced who? Did Joseph influence Akhenaten with monotheism, a belief in one god, and did Akhenaten put his Egyptian spin on it and turn it into this god of light? Or was it Akhenaten who influenced Joseph with monotheism now we'll probably never know the answer to that but once again isn't that one of those great questions
0: that's a fantastic question you said earlier that, that you collect artifacts
1: um, I collect a lot of well <laughs> here we go. There we go see
0: because I have a collection of Greek and uh, Roman antiquities
1: yeah, it's, it's, you know, as long as they're acquired, as I'm sure you have through legitimate means, um, because, you know, we all want to possess something like that, um, you know, like this statue here that I have, I mean, this is, you know, simply a reproduction, right. but it, you know, it's, it it helps people visualize what we're talking about. You know, this is called the Nemes, N-E-M-E-S, and this is a very typical, Depiction of an ancient Egyptian headdress. And as you can see on here, you have the cobra and the vulture. They were two symbols of the Egyptian pharaohs. So then when the cobra went and swallowed Tutankhamun, I mean, uh, Howard Carter's canary, you know, because the cobra can spit poison and strike down the enemies. Now, the vulture, that one always got me. I mean, vultures kind of looked at as nasty, but they also play into the cycle of life, too, because vultures are necessary. And the Egyptians looked at animals, you know, very differently than, than we do. I mean, cats were considered sacred. Um, cobras were. Uh, even crocodiles, uh, they they had a god, uh, Sobik, which was um, a crocodile-type entity. So they they looked at things a lot differently than than we do, and plus, you know, you got to realize they were much closer to nature. Nature was an everyday fact of life for these people.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I, I've been picking up reproductions like that too over the years. You know, but I got into collecting Greek and Roman antiquities because I thought it was fascinating. You know, I've got glass and and things like that. You know, like uh, like like perfume bottles. Yep, so it's kind of cool to have. So, what's your most favorite artifact that you have?
1: Oh, you know, I, I'm gonna kick myself. I was gonna bring it into uh, my office. It's in the other room. It is an um, an object from Tutankhamun's tomb, and it's called the wishing cup. And it was an alabaster um, cup. It's uh, it's about so big. And I remember when I, I finally saw the real one, you know, I'd had this reproduction for years. Mm-hmm. And the reproduction did a pretty good job of, of copying it. But when I saw the real one, it just really, really touched my heartstrings.
0: It's incredible to see that stuff. If you guys ever get a chance, if that stuff ever comes around again, you guys should go. I mean, just just don't even hesitate. Because it's fantastic to see. You can't imagine the stuff that they got out. And it's all caked in gold. It's all painted up with gold, and it's just it's just it's just an incredible sight. But again, like we said in the beginning of the show, it's it's kind of sad to see when you think about the history of Tutankhamun.
1: Well, absolutely. But you know, let's look at it this way. The Egyptians built monuments to their their rulers, their kings. So because for them, for your name to be remembered, mm-hmm. was immortality. And that's why like Akhenaten, um, his, his name, his memory was erased by the Egyptian priests, uh, Tutankhamun was wiped out because they wanted even to deny them immortality. And so 33 centuries, now 34, another 100 years has passed, Thirty-four centuries after the death of Tutankhamun, everybody knows his name, King Tut, Tutankhamun. But has anyone heard of I? Has anyone heard of Horemhab? Yeah, some specialists, people like you and me that read this stuff, but most people don't. But the name Tutankhamun lives on into eternity. So in a sense, Charlotte, justice has been done
0: that is true mark i want to thank you so much for coming on i so appreciate it it was wonderful i would love to have you on to talk about the other tubes i mean i could go for hours talking about this stuff
1: yeah and uh, i want to tell people my latest book is the afterlife frequency and if people want to find out more about um uh, my book the afterlife frequency my book evidence of eternity and my book never letting go please visit my website which is afterlifefrequency.com. You can find out about signing up for a personal reading. Please subscribe to my newsletter because um, it'll keep you up to date on events and conferences where I'm speaking at. Um, I speak, uh, I'll speak. i be headlining at the International Association for Near Death Studies over Labor Day in Salt Lake City. I'm, I'm speaking in Phoenix at Helping Parents Heal in August. And I will be presenting at the Edgar Casey's Ancient Mysteries Conference in Virginia Beach in, in October. I'm presenting Sacred Astrology, the Mystical Magi and the Mystery of the Star of Bethlehem. Yeah. And uh, that's a really fun presentation But um, I want to thank you, Charlotte, so much for having me on California Haunts. I love the work that you do. The paranormal investigation is so important. And this show is very important. And people um, that are listening and have enjoyed this program and all the others, um, there's information here how to donate to keep uh, this going. You know, people expect all of us in the metaphysical field just to, to do this. But, you know, we do have mortgages, we do have bills, and we do got to keep our websites running. And the thing is, uh, California Haunts does a lot of really great work because they just don't jump to conclusions. They analyze the evidence and then they, they discern it because a lot of paranormal investigators go into a preconceived notion that there's a demon here. It's like, uh, before we start leaping into the arms of, of of negativity, why don't we get the readings first, understand what it is, and then make a decision. So I want to thank you again, Charlotte, and I want to thank everyone associated with California Haunts, and I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thank you. God bless you. Namaste.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And again, I would love to have you on any any time to talk more about this because it's a topic I could talk about forever. All right, Mark. Thank you. Have a good evening. All right, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. All right, that was a fascinating show. I mean, like I said, I could talk to him for hours about this stuff. And uh, wow, that's all I can say is wow. Tomorrow we're going to be on at noon because our guest is, is, is Stephen Mira. And we're going to be talking about ghosts, UFOs, and how the paranormal has never really been tied into UFO study. And uh, it's going to be an interesting show. So that'll be tomorrow at noon. All right. Again, I want to thank our guests for coming on. I want to thank all of you for watching. I really appreciate you you coming on. You know, night after night. You know, we started like I said, we just did that two that two hundred show, and and uh, we're still trucking. We're still trucking. Anyway, I want to thank everybody. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show. Share it with five of your enemies for equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And if you want to check out our website, that's Radio.com. We're also on TikTok. Uh, the website for the paranormal team is org And please, if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. There's a little ghost down at the bottom right-hand corner You're. Uh, of your screen and he's got a Sherlock Holmes hat and a magnifying glass and please click that and there's over 250 videos on there and there's different topics just like tonight. Tonight was a different topic which is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Also uh, if you're watching from from uh, Facebook or Twitch, I'm sorry I see I've lost it again. If you're watching from Facebook, please uh, follow. Please hit that follow button. If you're watching from Twitch, do the same thing. I'd really appreciate it. But I want to thank you all. And as he said, yeah, we do this work and, uh, I, you know, like he says, there's bills to pay and stuff and uh, we want to keep the show on the air and keep it going. If you could find it in your heart to donate, that would be great. Uh, that's paypal.me at California Haunts or you can do it at California Haunts at Venmo. All right. And I'm really impressed. I didn't expect a endorsement from Mark Anthony of old people. So, wow. So if we're going to end on that high note tonight and... I will thank you again, and I will see you tomorrow at noon. So here's Mark Anthony's contact information and his books so where you can get them. Website, afterlifefrequency.com. Never Letting Go is one of the books. Evidence of Eternity, or Evidence of Eternity, I'm sorry, da, 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 do. Uh. and the afterlife frequency. I think you liked me. <laughs> uh. And of course they're available at Amazon.com. Anyway, I think he liked me. I still can't get over that endorsement at the end. That's pretty cool. And he's right. That That, that is how we, we investigate. That's how we investigate our cases. So if you're looking, you know, if you have paranormal problems, get a hold of me. Find a way. Okay. Anyway, I will see you guys tomorrow at noon. So have a good night.